we unveiled the whiteboard um, Wednesday night and it got rave reviews. Um, Don said, uh, Don Cummings said, it was remarkable. I said, you really liked it? He said, it was remarkable. And I thought about it and I realized what he was saying. Um, but, so we'll do the best we can with it. But um, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7. Let's begin in verse 6. After God tells Israel when they come into the land not to make a covenant with these other nations, not to make covenants with them, but, in, but what they were to do was to break down their idols. And in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Then it shall come about because you listen to these ju judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness which he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine, and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female bearing among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will put, not put on you any of the harmful diseases which you have known. He will lay them on those who hate you. You will consume all peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve them, for that would be a snare to you. Okay. God says in verse 6, he says you are a holy people. You're a holy people. God is a holy God. And to be set apart to a holy God makes us a holy people. You are a holy people, a people for His own possession. Or some of your translations may have something to the effect that you are a treasured possession. God rejoices over us as His people. 
We are His treasured possession. Now both of these terms uh, are used in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, when God enters into a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And we are a holy people. And the New Testament uses both of these expressions. Holiness is used quite frequently. And the Bible talks about us being a people of God's own possession in passages like Titus 2 and verse 14. And so the point is these people are a special nation before God. Therefore, they are not to stray and worship other gods. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be His possession out of all peoples on the face of the earth. Now, the fact that God has chosen Israel leads to the question, why? And the answer is not easy to find. In verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all people. God didn't choose Israel because of something in them. He chose Israel because of his nature. He chose Israel because of his love. He didn't set his love on you and choose you because you were more in number. Was it because they were such a great multitude? No. He says you were few in number. If you look at Deuteronomy 26 verse 5 in the confession that Israel makes or the statement of thanksgiving when they present offerings before God, they spoke of being few in number. But the Lord set his love upon you and loved you. Again, God's love is based upon who he is and not who we are. To claim to be loved of God and chosen of God is not a means to exalt ourselves, but it is a means to be thankful to God. To be thankful. And notice in verse 8, the Lord loved you and the Lord kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. So often in the book of Deuteronomy, God's going to talk about his oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He loved you. He kept the oath that he swore to your fathers. And in verse 9, know the Lord your God is a faithful God. Now, let me ask you a question. As this book has condemned idolatry so frequently, in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6, how does God describe himself when he is condemning idolatry? God is described as a what kind of God? Jealous God. He is a jealous God. Right now, God is emphasizing he is a faithful God. Both are true. Both are true. He is faithful and he keeps his covenant and he keeps his loving kindness to a thousand generations. Now, I hope what I'm doing here 
is helpful. I ask you to follow with me. But when the Bible speaks, for example, of the fact that God uh, loved us, this same Hebrew word, the word that's used for God's love for us is used in verse 8 and verse 13. The same word is used to talk about man's love for God in 7 verse 9. In 7 verse 8, the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. But in verse 9, the Bible tells us the Lord keeps his covenant to a thousand generations to those who love him. And it's the same word love that was used back in chapter 6 in verse 5. Where we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. How do we respond to the love of God? We love him in return. Also, the Bible stresses in verse 9 that God keeps His covenant. He keeps His covenant with us. And notice in verse 12 that it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them the Lord will keep with you His covenant. So God is said to keep His covenant in verse 9 and in verse 12, but also you see man keeping God's commandments in both of those verses. So what I'm saying is there is a part of this covenant <clears throat> Where God is acting and there is a part of this covenant that calls on our response. God keeps his covenant with us. We're expected to keep our covenant with him. God loves us. We are expected to love him in return. And God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. Verse 9 says. Now I have used this before. And if the Lord keeps sparing me. I'll use this again. Because I think this is a pretty powerful point. I think everybody here would look upon the time of Moses as being long ago. Do you know how many generations there are between us and Moses? If you count a generation 25 years, and sometimes people count it 40, count a generation 25 years, and you take the earliest date that is argued for Moses, there are 150 generations between us and Moses. God keeps his loving kindness to a thousand generations. That's a way of saying you're going to keep it forever. He keeps it to a thousand generations. To those who love him. To those who keep his commandments. But if you hate him. In verse 10. 
If you hate him, he will repay you to your face. Sometimes in descriptions like verses 9 and 10, there is an emphasis in verses 9 and 10 on God keeping his covenant to a thousand generations and repaying those who hate him. Sometimes in passages like this, the consequences of sin last to a third and fourth generation, but not here. Here it simply emphasizes God will destroy those who hate him. In verse 13, God will love you, God will bless you, God will multiply you. He will multiply all your grain, your new wine, your oil. He will multiply all of these things. Now, I'm probably not going to express this as well as the commentary expressed it in which I read this week. Uh, That is in Hebrew, Dagoth. Who was Dagon? You all know who Dagon was. David, you're shaking your head. Who, who is Dagon? God of the Philistine. And you see Samson dealing with him in Judges 16, beginning with verse 23. The people celebrate and says, God has given our enemy, Dagon has given our enemy into our hand. You also uh, see that in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. But Dagon is also the word, the same root word, is used here and is translated in verse 13 as rain. Now, that tells you something about what they probably attributed to Dagon. They attributed to Dagon giving them their grain. And, but God often will use these three items that are mentioned in verse 13. He will use them together throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to multiply your grain, your new wine, and your oil. Now this is a point I want to make up. The fact that it's God who gives them Dagon, it's God who gives them grain, is just another way to emphasize you cannot attribute these blessings to the idols of the nations around you. These blessings are from God. These blessings are from the Lord your God who has made a covenant with you. He's made a covenant with you. And in verse 14, he's blessed you above all peoples. And if you are faithful, you will be blessed ex extremely. The blessings of the covenant, which we talked about uh, before, uh, and they'll come at the end of the book in the strongest form. But, but they're mentioned right here. God will bless you with all these things. In verse 15, he'll remove you, remove from you the diseases of Egypt. And in verse 16, uh, God will consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. And the statement is made in pity and compassion are generally good qualities in the Bible. But God says here, your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their God, for they will be a snare to you.
I don't think that does, does means we don't feel a sense of sadness for this person. But it means that still God is saying, you must do what I tell you. You must eliminate them. And that is, I'm the one who made them and know them. And I know what's right here. We will see that phrase used elsewhere in the book for punishing people who were disobedient to God in other ways. Your eyes shall not pity them. What questions do you all have on verses 7 or 6 through 16 that I may have skirted? Any thoughts or questions? Is everybody just standing in disbelief wondering if we'll really get to the end of chapter 8 uh, today? Or, But any questions if you have them? Sarah? Um, grain, new wine, and oil. One thing that I've always associated that with is sacrifice. So, I mean, that's part of what's required mm-hmm. for the sacrifices. Uh, yes, that's so true. Like in other places, uh, the minor prophets, for some reason I'm thinking Malachi, but that doesn't sound quite right. Uh, God saying, I'm going to bless you with this, this, and this, meaning you can now continue return to sacrificing and not have an excuse for not having what you need to do. Malachi does have a passage like that in Malachi 3 about pouring out a blessing and I will will bless you. It's interesting in Hosea 2 there is a discussion how the people attributed all these things to Baal or God Baal. And God says, I'm going to to shut you up and make you suffer so that you may realize that Baal is not the source of blessing so that you'll come running back to your true husband who is the Lord. So, but Malachi does have a passage like that three about verse seven is where it starts. David, was that you, your hand, or is that Bob's hand? Okay. There was, okay. Deborah's hand, okay. I knew there was a hand in that area. No, no, those, those words for love are the same. The, the words that I have here, this is uh, the word for loving us and the word for us loving God. These verses the same. Now, the word loving kindness that's used there in verse 9, that is a different Hebrew word. Very important word, uh, but maybe, maybe one of the most important words, if not the most, in the Old Testament. But, you know, the... the these verses, yes, verses 8 and 13 use a word for love that is also used of describing our love for God in verse 9. When it talks about at the end of verse 9 that we love Him and keep His commandments. Okay? Okay, that was used to describe, the word basically just means grain. 
it was used by the Philistines of the one they felt was the God who gave them their grain. And if God is using this in describing the blessings that He will give to Israel if they are faithful. So, so all these other God, nations around had gods that gave them grain, gods that gave them what? And oil. God says, no, I'm the one who's going to give you these things if you're faithful to me. God is the source of all blessings. And that's, and that's being stressed. Okay? Let's look at verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? We talked about in 7.1, the nations were stronger and mightier than Israel. If you're worried, how can you dispossess them? God's about to give an answer. We will find that praise in seven, chapter 7, 8, and 9, if you would say in your heart. But here the people are saying in their heart, the nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? This is the answer, verse 18. You will not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hands, and the outstretched arms by which the Lord brought you out. So, you, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left hide themselves from you and perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God in your midst is a great and awesome God. How can we fight these nations stronger than we are and mightier than we are? We're weak, we're helpless before them. God's answer, remember what I did to Egypt. Remember what I did to Egypt. And the great trials and the signs and the wonders that you saw and how I brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand and with a mighty arm. What were the odds from a human perspective of Israel as a nation coming out of the powerful and mighty land of Egypt. They would have been non-existent. And yet God did that. And God says, remember that when you're facing another impossible situation. If you can ever think of an impossible circumstance as the Lord delivered you from, remember it. Keep refreshing it in your mind. And remember that the Lord your God can do that in other occasions. And if you don't have that in your personal experience, think of the ones that are in Scripture. Think of the ones where we see God doing that with these people. And God is going to send in verse 20 the hornet among them. He's just going to, is that literal? I doubt it. I think that is just that he's going to send a state of confusion and panic among them so that they will not know what they're doing. I want to ask you a question. Can you remember all the times in the Old Testament where God sent confusion and panic among a nation that Israel was fighting and that nation starts to fight among themselves? For example, 
Gideon has 300 men. He's fighting an army of over 100,000. In the middle of the night, those 300 men stage an offensive. Now that's not generally the case if you just got 300 fighting against 130,000. But they smash their pitchers, they shine their light, they say a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the army was thrown into such confusion, they start killing each other. And that happens time after time in the Old Testament. I think this is what this is saying. I'm going to send the hornet among you. I'm going to confuse them. I'm going to disorient them. This enemy is going to be attacking and fighting one another. It may be uh, not literally in this case, but he does speak of confusion again in verse 23. And then in verses 22 and 23, God says, I'm going to drive them out little by little. I'm not going to drive them out all at once. I'm going to drive them out little by little, lest the wild beast overtake the land. Let me always encourage you, and I hope you have in your Bible good footnotes or good side notes. But here in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, this same statement was made when they first came out of Egypt in Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30. I'm going to drive them out little by little. I'm not going to drive them out all at once. One of your best commentaries on the text is going to be your cross-references in the text. So look at them. The Lord your God will clear these nations away little by little and deliver them from you and throw you into confusion until you're destroyed. And in verse 24, He's going to deliver their kings into your hand and God is going to make their name perish from under heaven. God said He would make Abraham's name great, but He's going to make the names of these kings perish. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. Verse 25, the graven images of the gods you are to burn with fire. You are not to covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves. Or you will be snared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house. And like it come under the ban, you shall utterly detest it. You shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. The idea in verse 26 of something under the ban, I don't know if that is your translation, the version you're looking at, but under the ban, that is a way of saying, this is a word that's used most frequently in a couple of places in the Bible, in Joshua 6, in 1 Samuel 15. And these are where God says it's often translated utterly destroy. Utterly destroy the people of Jericho. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. Point is that you're to eliminate their idols. You're to, not to possess them. You're not to keep them for their silver and gold. You're not to do any of that. Okay. What else? What thoughts do you have? What questions do you have, Bob? Devoted to destruction is a good translation right there. They devoted it to God by destroying. 
And it does fit the situation in those passages that we mentioned. Anything else? Any questions? Go ahead, Susan. I'm just in, in verse 22 where he's talking about clearing away the nations little by little. How did that, how did that play out? Just because the conquest took yes. more, than, more than 10 minutes? The conquest... It, you know, I, maybe I should have taken that consideration the other night in some of those comments about not intermarrying with them and not making covenants with them. Um, God tells them that, 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 the, that the conquest, there's going to be a difference between the initial conquest where you have secured the land and you're dwelling on the land and driving all of them out. And after they took this land and divided this land in the book of Joshua, we see in the book of Judges, they did not drive them out thoroughly. And, and so God's design is that it takes a time so the land is not overwhelmed by evil beasts. The problem is the people weren't obedient. They left these people in the land. They became, and this will come up in our sermon again later today from the New Testament. They ended up being influenced by the nations more than they influenced them. And doesn't it always seem like in relationships we go to the lowest common denominator? It's, more, it's easier for an evil person to, to be influenced for wrong by an evil person than it is to be influenced for good a good person. And the Bible warns about the dangers of evil companionship more than it extols the virtues of good companionship. So the Bible recognizes that. But, so, but that all ties in. And just, just put that into consideration when we talk later about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, a part of the Bible that we cannot ignore and we must practice. But at the same time, we have to remember too the warnings against evil companions. You can kind of keep these things in balance. Okay? Okay, let's look in Deuteronomy. Tony, can I get you real loudly to read verses 1 through 10? The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you to these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hungry, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that it might make you know that the man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey. 
a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Okay, very good, very good. So God says when you come into the land, I want you to remember these things I'm telling you. The words remember, the words forget are big in Deuteronomy 7 and 8. The word remember was used in 7.18. It's used here in 8.2. Remember the way the Lord your God led you in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you. In verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know. You know, I, I walked out just a second today outside before we left. And it was an utterly beautiful day. And it's you experienced. You know, one of the reasons that I guess I appreciated it. I appreciated it more because it has been in such a contrast to what has been the circumstance here. Do you think you appreciate that, that beautiful April day more here? Or if you lived in Florida. I appreciate it more here. Because sometimes when we go without, we begin to appreciate what we have. Who appreciates an invitation to eat? The person who has plenty or the person who's starving? God let you be hungry and humbled you. He was doing this to build in their hearts gratitude to him, thankfulness to him, dependence upon him. And I'm saying sometimes when we have these blessings all the time, we take them for granted and don't appreciate them. The latter part of the chapter is going to deal with that. The latter part of Deuteronomy 8 is going to deal with that. But right now, God is said... To test them, to test them, to humble them, to feed them with manna which they didn't know, which your fathers didn't know, to teach them that we live by bread. We don't live by bread alone, but we, we live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, you know where that's quoted in the New Testament. Who quotes it? Jesus. Jesus. When he is tempted by the devil, turn these stones to bread. And he quotes from this passage. It is fascinating in the wilderness. And if you studied numbers with us, you know this. In the wilderness, Israel was constantly complaining. And there was nothing they complained about more than food and water. Nothing. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. And he has nothing to eat. And he quotes this passage from the wilderness of Israel's experience. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. One of the points of the temptations of Jesus is that Jesus is resisting the very temptations that Israel fell to in the wilderness. Complaining about food, complaining about water. Jesus is going to trust God to provide. He's going to trust God. And when they were in the wilderness, and you know this has to be miraculous. In verse 4, your clothing did not wear out, 
nor did your foot swell for 40 years. It's hard to get a change in clothes in the wilderness. But God provided. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell. And God was disciplining you as a father disciplines his son. He was putting them through hardship. He was teaching them something. And any time we go through hardship, it is a reminder not to take blessings for granted. Don't take blessings for granted. Every hardship is a reminder for how thankful we are for a normal day. And the Bible says, the Lord your God was disciplining you like a father does his son. And in verses 7 through 9, he speaks in beautiful, glowing terms of what the land is going to be. It's going to be a land of water and fountains and springs and wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. It is going to be a land where you have everything. And notice particularly in verse 9. A land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything. You will not lack. Now this statement in chapter 8, verse 9, is talking about the promised land. This statement is talking about the land of Canaan. That statement also was used Back in chapter 2 and verse 7 of Deuteronomy, those two words, to talk about Israel in the wilderness. It says, you have not lacked a thing. So that talks about the wilderness experience. This talks about the promised land. But this is what I wanted to emphasize. The two words that are used there, in Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Same two words. By the way, David has on his tie Psalm 23, Christina, you get any one of those. But um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Same two words. God is being a good shepherd to the people. He's been a good shepherd. He was a good shepherd to the people in the wilderness. He's been a good shepherd to the people in the promised land. They're not going to lack anything. And in verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Now we talked about word plays, the word love, the word key. Deborah was asking about before. But the word bless. In 7.13, it is the Lord who is blessing the people. And now as the people experience the Lord's blessing, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, you need to bless, praise the Lord. We should... Bless the Lord for all we've been given. To be satisfied. In the Bible, is that a good thing? 
It's a bad thing. You know what I would say? Anne Marie, you were, you were going to say? Both. Okay, I think it's probably right. I would say that it can be a dangerous thing. Because when we're satisfied, we forget how blessed we are. And you see that word, satisfied, used both in chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 10 tells us when you have eaten and you are satisfied, bless the Lord. But the next section is going to tell us our temptation, our problem. And? Yes. God is the one who satisfies. God is the one who satisfies. But the trouble is, the trouble is that when we eat and we're satisfied, we may forget the source of all our blessings. Look at verse, in verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. By the way, stop right there. Every time we do what God said, every time we keep a commandment of God, we act the way we do because God said so. It is a reminder to us of the source of all our blessings. It is a reminder to us that we owe everything to Him. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you have eaten and you're satisfied and everything is falling into place for you. You have many herds, many flocks. That's how they measured wealth. You have silver and gold. You have all these things. And when you're experiencing these blessings and you are enjoying them, beware you don't forget God. Now, first of all, I want to acknowledge something to you. Verses 12 and 13, in a different way, in a figurative way, describe my life. And probably yours. We have plenty to eat. We have plenty to live on. Beware that you don't become proud. <coughs> what ultimately does it mean to be proud? It is to forget our dependence upon God. To forget our dependence on God. To lose sight of that is to become proud. Whether a person is bombastic, or whether they're quiet, come over as humble. If they forget, we forget our dependence on God. We're proud. In verse 15, 
He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness he fed you with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, verse 17, you may say in my heart, your heart, my power, the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now, I'll tell you a phrase that I hate. Speaking of someone who is wealthy as a self-made man or woman. Self-made. Now, I know what they mean. They didn't inherit a bunch of wealth from their forefathers. There's no such thing as a self-made person. It's the Lord who gives you power to get wealth. Some who want to make everyone dependent on government. Some preach self-reliance. Truth is neither. Dependence upon God is where it's at. Dependence upon God. Recognizing that He is the source of all blessings. That He is the one on whom we rely. And the danger in our affluence, in our prosperity, there are people today that are meeting like us that have as many numbers as we do. Who are meeting outside under a tree. Because they have no building. And they have no running water. Do I think we should do that instead? I'm not arguing that. But I'm saying there's a danger with what we have. There's a danger that we forget every penny we have and every blessing we enjoy and every bite of food that crosses our lips or drink of water that goes into our mouth is a gift from God. And don't forget the God who is the source of everything. Don't forget it. And if we forget it, it's disaster. Now this word test is really fascinating. It's used in verse 2, verse 3, verse 16. I may have to preach a lesson on it sometime in the future. It's used of man testing God, which is a bad thing. And it's used of God testing us, which is a good thing. But God doesn't want us to forget. In verse 19, it'll come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them and testify, I testify against you today that you shall surely perish like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Okay. What questions do you all have at the interstatement, Sarah? So, um, going back to verse 3, 
free a little bit. So he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you. And it just, it made me think immediately of when COVID made it impossible for us to assemble and how when we started to be able to come together again, how much more, I hope all of us, but I know some of us have appreciated that ability to come together. And if we had not had that experience of being separated from each other for yeah. that long period of time, I don't know if we would have appreciated The absence that. of something, the absence of something makes us appreciate when we get it back. I know the first time uh, that I was, I was in a foreign country away from Christy and she wrote a love letter the likes of which I hadn't read since I've been married, you know. And uh, she was thrilled to see me after she missed me. Uh, don't ask her today, you know, since we're around a while. But uh, the point is, is sometimes the absence of something shows us how blessed we are. Let's not be people who have to lose it all before we're thankful. Be thankful right here and now for what God has given us. And may God help us to do that. We're going to see if we can do 9 and 10 on Wednesday night. We shall see. Bob, I'm thinking the 12 to 14 range. That we shall see. Are you and Tony going to take care of y'all the muscle men are going to take care of that? Or? He's got to push it to the back. You can just push it to the back. That's right. Are you going to use it? Uh, I, well, who knows? I may. Thank you for that. I may. We need to push it back because it's in front of the screen. No, here's an opportunity to just say whatever you want to say and get it recorded. <clears throat> so tell us now what you really think of Tom. Yeah, so in